Section two of a Lear of the Steps, etc., by Ivan Turgenev. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Lear of the Steps, Part Four. And yet even this self-confident, unflinching giant had his moments of melancholy and depression. Without any visible cause, he would suddenly begin to be sad. He would lock himself up alone in his room and hum positively hum, like a whole hive of bees, or he would call his page, Maximka, and tell him to read aloud to him out of the solitary book which had somehow found its way into his house, an odd volume of Novikovsky's The Worker at Leisure, or else to sing to him. And Maximka, who by some strange freak of chance, could spell out print, syllable by syllable, would set to work with the usual chopping up of the words and transference of the accent, bawling out phrases of the following description. But man in his willfulness draws from this empty hypothesis, which he applies to the animal kingdom, utterly opposite conclusions. Every animal separately, he says, is not capable of making me happy, and so on or he would chant in a shrill little voice a mournful song of which nothing could be distinguished but while martin petrovitch would shake his head make allusions to the mutability of life how all things turn to ashes fade away like grass pass and will return no more a picture had somehow come into his hands representing a burning candle which the winds with puffed-out cheeks were blowing upon from all sides below was the inscription such is the life of man he was very fond of this picture he had hung it up in his own room but at ordinary not melancholy times he used to keep it turned face to the wall so that it might not depress him harlov that colossus was afraid of death to the consolations of religion to prayer however he rarely had recourse in his fits of melancholy even then he chiefly relied on his own intelligence he had no particular religious feeling he was not often seen in church he used to say it is true that he did not go on the ground that owing to his corporeal dimensions he was afraid of squeezing other people out the fit of depression commonly ended in martin petrovitch's beginning to whistle and suddenly in a voice of thunder ordering out his droshky and dashing off about the neighbourhood vigorously brandishing his disengaged hand over the peak of his cap as though he would say for all that i don't care a straw he was a regular russian part five strong men like martin petrovitch are for the most part of a phlegmatic disposition but he on the contrary was rather easily irritated he was specially short-tempered with a certain bichkov who had found a refuge in our house where he occupied a position between that of a buffoon and a dependent he was the brother of harlov's deceased wife had been nicknamed souvenir as a little boy and souvenir he had remained for everyone, even the servants, who addressed him, it is true, as Souvenir Timofeitch. His real name he seemed hardly to know himself. He was a pitiful creature, looked down upon by everyone, a toady, in fact. 
He had no teeth on one side of his mouth, which gave his little wrinkled face a crooked appearance. He was in a perpetual fuss and fidget. He used to poke himself into the maid's room, or into the counting-house, or into the priest's quarters, or else into the bailiff's hut. He was repelled from everywhere, but he only shrugged himself up and screwed up his little eyes, and laughed a pitiful, mawkish laugh, like the sound of rinsing a bottle. It always seemed to me that, had Souvenir had money, he would have turned into the basest person, unprincipled, spiteful, even cruel. Poverty kept him within bounds. He was only allowed to drink on holidays. He was decently dressed, by my mother's orders, since in the evenings he took a hand in her game of piquette or boston. Souvenir was constantly repeating, "'Certainly, directly, directly, directly what?' my mother would ask, with annoyance. He instantly drew back his hands in a scare, and lisped, "'At your service, ma'am!' He listened at doors, backbiting, and above all, quizzing, teasing, were his sole interest, and he used to quiz as though he had a right to, as though he were avenging himself for something. He used to call Martin Petrovitch brother, and tormented him beyond endurance. "'What made you kill my sister?' Margarita Timofeevna, he used to persist, wriggling about before him and sniggering. One day Martin Petrovitch was sitting in the billiard-room, a cool apartment in which no one had ever seen a single fly, and which our neighbour, disliking heat and sunshine, greatly favoured on this account. He was sitting between the wall and the billiard-table. Souvenir was fidgeting before his bulky person, mocking him, grimacing. Martin Petrovitch wanted to get rid of him, and thrust both hands out in front of him. Luckily for Souvenir, he managed to get away. His brother-in-law's open hands came into collision with the edge of the billiard-table, and the billiard-board went flying off all its six screws. What a mass of batter Souvenir would have been turned into under those mighty hands! Part Six. It had long been curious to see how Martin Petrovitch arranged his household, what sort of a home he had. One day I invited myself to accompany him on horseback as far as Eskovo, which was the name of his estate. "'Upon my word, you want to have a look at my dominion,' was Martin Petrovitch's comment. "'By all means, I'll show you the garden, and the house, and the threshing-floor, and everything. I have plenty of everything.' we set off. It was reckoned hardly more than a couple of miles from our place to Eskovo. "'Here it is, my dominion!' Martin Petrovitch roared suddenly, trying to turn his immovable neck, and waving his arm to right and left. "'It's all mine!' Harlov's homestead lay on the top of a sloping hill. At the bottom a few wretched-looking peasants' huts clustered close to a small pond. At the pond, on a washing-platform, an old peasant woman in a check petticoat was beating some soaked linen with a bat. "'Aksinya!' boomed Martin Petrovitch, but in such a note that the rooks flew up in a flock from an oat-field near. "'Washing your husband's breeches?' The peasant woman turned at once, and bowed very low. "'Yes, sir,' sounded her weak voice. "'Aye, aye, yonder, look!' Martin Petrovitch continued, proceeding at a trot alongside a half-rotting wattle-fence. That is my hemp-patch. 
and that yonder's the peasants see the difference and this here is my garden the apple trees i planted and the willows i planted too else there was no timber of any sort here look at that and learn a lesson we turned into the courtyard shut in by a fence right opposite the gate rose an old tumble-down lodge with a thatch roof and steps up to it raised on posts on one side stood another rather newer and with a tiny attic but it too was a ramshackly affair here you may learn a lesson again observed harlov see what a little manor-house our fathers lived in but now see what a mansion i have built myself this mansion was like a house of cards five or six dogs one more ragged and hideous than another welcomed us with barking sheep-dogs observed martin petrovitch pure-bred crimeans sh damn brutes i'll come and strangle you one after another on the steps of the new building there came out a young man in a long full nankeen overall the husband of martin petrovitch's elder daughter skipping quickly up to the droshky he respectfully supported his father-in-law under the elbow as he got up and even made as though he would hold the gigantic feet which the latter bending his bulky person forward lifted with a sweeping movement across the seat then he assisted me to dismount from my horse anna cried harlov natalia nikolaevna's son has come to pay us a visit you must find some good cheer for him but where's evlampia anna was the name of the elder daughter evlampia of the younger she's not at home she's gone into the fields to get cornflowers responded anna appearing at a little window near the door is there any junket queried harlov yes and cream too yes well set them on the table and i'll show the young gentleman my own room meanwhile this way please this way he added addressing me and beckoning with his forefinger in his own house he treated me less familiarly as a host he felt obliged to be more formally respectful he led me along a corridor here is where i abide he observed stepping sideways over the threshold of a wide doorway this is my room pray walk in his room turned out to be a big unplastered apartment almost empty on the walls on the nails driven in askew hung two riding-whips a three-cornered hat reddish with wear a single-barrelled gun a sabre a sort of curious horse-collar inlaid with metal plates and the picture representing a burning candle blown on by the winds in one corner stood a wooden settle covered with a party-coloured rug hundreds of flies swarmed thickly about the ceiling yet the room was cool but there was a very strong smell of that peculiar odour of the forest which always accompanied martin petrovitch well is it a nice room harlov questioned me very nice look ye there hangs my dutch horse collar harlov went on dropping into his familiar tone again a splendid horse collar got it by barter off a jew just look at it it's a good horse collar it's most practical and just sniff it what leather i smelt the horse collar it smelt of rancid oil and nothing else now be seated there on the stool make yourself at home observed harlov while he himself sank on to the settle and seemed to fall into a doze 
shutting his eyes and even beginning to snore. I gazed at him without speaking, with ever-fresh wonder. He was a perfect mountain. There was no other word. Suddenly he started. "'Anna!' he shouted, while his huge stomach rose and fell like a wave on the sea. "'What are you about? Look sharp! Didn't you hear me?' "'Everything's ready, father. Come in,' I heard his daughter's voice. I inwardly marvelled at the rapidity with which Martin Petrovitch's behests had been carried out, and followed him into the drawing-room, where, on a table covered with a red cloth with white flowers on it, lunch was already prepared. Junket, cream, wheaten bread, even powdered sugar and ginger. While I set to work on the junket, Martin Petrovitch growled affectionately. "'Eat, my friend, eat, my dear boy, don't despise our country cheer!' And sitting down again in a corner, again seemed to fall into a doze. Before me, perfectly motionless, with downcast eyes, stood Anna Martinovna, while I saw through the window her husband walking my cob up and down the yard, and rubbing the chain of the snaffle with his own hands. End of section 2